grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Jonah. We have been studying now for, this is our sixth week, and we will continue to study it uh, next week as well and close out this series that we have been engaging in. Before we jump into the text, I want to ask you a question this morning. Um, When was the last time you pouted? Spouses, feel free to turn to your better half and remind them. Um, why, Why did you pout? Do you remember that? Do you remember? Again, spouses, feel free to remind your spouse. There's only one reason we pout, isn't there? Because we didn't get things our way. We didn't get what we want. And here in Jonah, what we're faced with is a man who is pouting before God because he has not got his way. He has given God his opinion, he's given God his thoughts, and he right now is in a condition where he is angered, exceedingly angry, the text tells us, with the grace of God that's been displayed to the Ninevites. This last chapter ultimately is the climax. It is the building crescendo to this short book. And the author, as we have said, is likely Jonah, has been weaving a tale and building up to this point. And it's here in this chapter that we see something really fascinating. It's here we see why this strange little book is really in the Bible at all. We see that in this little book, it exposes something profoundly important in each of our hearts and reminds us that our God is in the business of performing heart surgery. The grace of God has been splattered all over this book. It has been overwhelming to see God's grace on full display in so many different avenues, in so many different ways. We've seen God's grace through his blessings, through his salvation, through his kindness, and through his mercy, but one of the things we see in this text is that sometimes we are confronted with uncomfortable grace. Jonah here is experiencing the uncomfortable grace of God as he is confronted by God, as God goes after his heart and looks to expose his heart. Sometimes in our lives, we experience this very same uncomfortable grace. And yes, it's incredibly painful, but I want to give you three reasons this morning why this uncomfortable grace is absolutely necessary in our lives. Let's begin first by reading the text. Let's begin in chapter 4. We'll just back up to verse 4. Jonah has displayed his disappointment with the grace of God, and he says in verse, God says to him in verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Here, Jonah is confronted in such a powerful way 
And we have received a vivid picture of the way that God's grace can often be uncomfortable in our lives, and it's absolutely necessary. Here's the first reason why, because we are blind to our sin. We can be like Jonah, so very blind to our sin, and at this point in the ministry and the life of Jonah, God has graciously questioned the validity of Jonah's complaints. He's listened. He's, he's taken them in. He's heard Jonah. He's given him a listening ear, but he's come back to Jonah, and he's asked this heart-penetrating question. Jonah, are you sure that you have the right perspective on things? Are you sure that you have a right to be angry at my grace towards these sinners? Jonah has stubbornly stood in opposition to God's grace being given to the city of Nineveh. It has been painfully made clear through his angry rant about the character of God, and ultimately, Jonah's rant is against the very nature of God, who he is, what he represents, and how he operates. And here's the big problem with Jonah right now. As he ventures off and he sits and he watches over the city, here's what's happening in his heart. You see, when God asks him this question, do you do well, Jonah, to be angry with me? The answer that Jonah gives through his silence is a booming, a resounding yes. Yes, God, I believe I have a right to be angry with you. I believe I have a right to be frustrated by your grace. I believe, here's what it is, look, I believe I'm right and you're wrong. And we know this because look at what he does. Verse 5, he does. He goes out of the city, goes out to the east of the city, and he makes there a booth for himself. He finds probably some scraps, some wood, some branches maybe, and he makes this rudimentary booth to provide for him just a little bit of shade. It's not much, but it's something, something to protect him in a small way from the blazing heat of the desert. But here's the real issue What's he doing? Did you, do you catch the, the vividness of this scene? What's he doing? Where has he gone to? What is he watching for? What is Jonah in his heart hoping for as he sits in this position, probably located at a, an elevation so he can see the city of Nineveh? Why does he remain there? What is he hoping will happen? You see, here's what's going on in the heart of Jonah. He is still holding out for the utter destruction of the city. He thinks maybe somehow that his words have been persuasive, his arguments have been convicting to God Almighty that as he functioned in an advisory capacity to God himself, somehow his words have swayed the mind of God. And so he sits at this vantage point. Listen, he's thinking that he is going to get an amazing Sodom and Gomorrah-like firework display. That's what he longs for. He doesn't want them to experience grace. He wants judgment and punishment. God, rain down your vengeance upon the enemies of Israel. Notice this too. You see, God's asked him a question, but Jonah refuses to answer. Did you catch that? That there's no answer from Jonah, and his silence makes it very clear that he's not interested in the Word of God. He's not interested in God's perspective. He's not interested in hearing anything God wants to say. He is convinced that he is right and God is wrong. He is convinced, he expects that he must be heard. And so in total defiance, he sits. And he sits waiting for judgment, and instead of rejoicing in God's grace... 
He longs for the wrath of God to be put on display. Now, part of the reason this story is in the Bible is to challenge us to look at our hearts and to see, we've we've talked about this time and time again through this little study in Jonah, that we are really no different than Jonah. And as we look at Jonah, we can say with conviction, I am Jonah. There are times where I am disappointed with God, I am angry with God, I am resentful towards God. But the question really is this, how, how does this happen? How does this happen in the life of a prophet like Jonah? How does this happen in your life and mine? How can we, who are so mature at times in our lives, fall so far into immaturity and distance from God? You see, as we stare at Jonah in the pages of Scripture, we're reminded that even the most mature believers are prone to sin, are prone to wander, and can fall very far from the grace that they have once experienced. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he reflects on the nation of Israel and their stubbornness, and, and he looks at their desert experience. They're wandering in the wilderness, and one of the things he does is as he looks at them, he says, you know, he, he reminds us that God provided for them. God delivered them out of captivity and slavery, and in God's grace, listen, he blessed them. He gave them water from the rock. He gave them manna from heaven. He cared for them, and yet in an instant, the very same people who experienced God's blessing and God's grace turned their back on him and served idols. They went after false gods. And it's so interesting that in that context, listen, here's here's what Paul says about the Old Testament events, and I believe this really uh, points us to how in many ways we are to look at the Old Testament. He says this in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He says again in verse 11, after he looks at their idolatry and their sin, their sexual immorality and all the evil and the grumbling. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. You see, as we look to the Old Testament and as we consider Jonah, there are times in the Bible where people are upheld as those we can look at as a positive example, right? But there are times when people are held up as a negative example. Don't be like this. And Jonah is being flashed before our eyes as somebody to say, hey, don't be like this guy. We need to be instructed by his example We need to be warned by his example. But it's so fascinating that in this context, Paul goes on to say, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You see, the warning is this, that we can be very close to God. We can walk with God for many years. We can walk with God with a great degree of consistency. We can experience a great degree of vitality in our spiritual lives and maturity in our spiritual lives. Listen, and then, and then in an instant, when we think we're standing firm, we can be tempted like every other person who's gone before us, and we can fall very, very far away. This happens even to the most mature Christians, even a man like Jonah who had a flourishing ministry who heard directly from God and spoke on behalf of God to the people of God. And really, as we consider the staggering reality of what our hearts are able to do, how quickly they can turn, we need to understand the Bible makes it very clear that sin in our heart is so often veiled. We're warned to know and to guard our hearts. In fact, one of the kind of key verses in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Our hearts are prone to wander into sin, and our eyes are prone to ignore it. We fail to see that we can so quickly venture into sinful behavior and thinking and attitudes. It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. It says, take care, brothers, speaking to the church, speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ, let there be, lest there be any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But notice this, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I, I hope there what you see is a great sense of urgency, a great warning that every one of us is prone to wander off into sin. And the more and more we go after sin, the more and more we're cultivating a sinful, evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. And notice the, the urgency of being involved in the family of God. Exhort one another every day. Every day you and I need to be reminded of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day we need people in our lives to help us stay on track and not veer off into sinful behavior. Every day our hearts are at risk of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, of being calcified because of our proneness towards sin. say, well, How do we guard against this? Well, let me just give you three quick things that I believe Scripture is clear on to help guard our hearts from the deceitfulness of sin and to help expose the sin that we may not see even today. First, be in prayer. Be in prayer. And this is so basic. It's so basic. It's, I mean, I I feel like I shouldn't even say it, but I feel like I need to say it because I know my own heart. We need to be in prayer, but specifically, we need to be in prayer about this issue. In other words, you know, when, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that if you go and you ask your Father for good things, He will give it to you. You know, when you ask your Father in heaven for bread, He will not give you a rock. When you ask Him for a fish, He won't give you a serpent. One of the implications of that is anytime you go to God and ask Him for what is in line with His will, with what He already wants for you, God loves to respond So when you go to God and you say, God, I I need your help. I need you to reveal sin in my life. I know, Lord, it's there. I don't see it all. I know there are different layers of sin. Lord, I just want you to expose the sin in my heart. Listen, God, that's a dangerous prayer to pray, right? God wants to reveal that. Secondly, be in the Word. You see, God's Spirit always works to bring conviction through His Word. It's the truth of His Word The author of Hebrews is saying in in Hebrews 4.12, right, that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able, here's what it's able to do, to expose the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It cuts right into us, and and James says that it becomes like a mirror in our lives. You know, we we hold it up before us, and it functions like a mirror to reveal to us all of the, the spots, the warts, the wrinkles, and the gray hairs that are spreading way too fast, Right? And we see ourselves for who we truly are. God uses his word in our hearts to bring that conviction by the spirit of God. And we've already mentioned it, but let me just reinforce this. Hebrews 3 makes it very clear. Don't just be in prayer. Don't just be in the word. Be in community. Be in community. There's a necessity for us to be surrounded by those who know and love Jesus Christ. One of the reasons for the church is this, that as we do life together, there are people who can daily encourage us, exhort us, help spur us on to holiness, help see sin in our lives that we can't see ourselves. 
Too many Christians today in our culture live in autonomous, independent form of Christianity that is antithetical to the Christianity of the Bible. Nobody in Scripture is saved onto an island and expected to do the Christian life all by themselves. We are all saved into a local body, and God calls this a family, a family where we love each other, a family where we help each other, a family where we are willing to go the extra mile and to point out areas of sin, as painful as it may be, to help one another grow. Now, I just want to encourage you All those things require a great degree of urgency and intentionality. You're not going to have those kind of relationships, by the way, just showing up on Sunday. You know, you may foster some decent relationships, but, but those kind of relationships where you have that kind of input into somebody's life and when you can ask for it from others, that requires us going deeper with one another. That requires us doing life together on a regular basis. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Be involved, get into small groups, meet with Christians regularly, and be intentional about your time of going after sin and pursuing Jesus Christ in holiness. At this point, we see God's grace so clearly at work in Jonah. He comes to Jonah and he gives him a powerful object lesson now. He gives him really a living parable to go after the heart of this stubborn, pouting prophet. And what I want you to see here is that this grace gets more uncomfortable and more painful as we go along. And maybe the question you're asking now is why? Why is this necessary that God's grace could be so uncomfortable? Here's the second reason, because we are driven by our passions. Because we're driven by our passions. Every one of us is fueled to live our lives based on passions that rule our hearts. See, what God wants to do here is go after the heart of Jonah. He attacks the heart of Jonah. And I just want to just maybe just pause for a moment. Can we first of all just be encouraged for a moment by the patience of God with people like Jonah? I hope that encourages you because I read this, and here's, here's what my flesh does inside of me. When I read Jonah, I'm like, really, God? Like, how much longer are you going to put up with this schmuck? Right? Like, how much longer are you going to continue to deal with this guy? This guy is so stubborn. He's so ridiculous. He thinks he can speak to you however he wants. God, when are you going to kick him to the curb and be done with him? But then I hear the words of Nathan to David, and they, they ring loudly in my own ears. But Ian, you are the man. Ian, you're no different than Jonah. Ian, you are Jonah. Your heart does the same things. You're prone to the same things. You are prone to love grace in your life and not in others' lives. You're prone to be judgmental instead of merciful. Just look at the brilliant way in which God goes after the heart of Jonah. I love this, verse 6. Isn't this amazing? Now, the Lord God appointed a plant, and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Just notice this. Even in Jonah's rebellion, God in His grace wants to give him some sort of comfort. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't just give up on you, that God continues to give you grace even when you're in a rebellious spirit? Notice this too, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
I love that God doesn't just leave Jonah to himself. Instead, he helps him by bringing comfort to him. But you have to get the sense of what's happening here, of what we are intended to take away from this. You see, God brings this plant up, do you get this picture, out of nowhere. If we had a time-lapse video, this is happening in minutes. This is a miracle grow plant that Jonah would look at, right? Just all of a sudden, just, just plant shoots up in minutes. And it's huge. It's sprawling, right? It's giving him shade. It's giving him cool air. He's protected. Yes. And you want to know what Jonah would have known? This is no accident. Stuff like this does. Like plant, plants just don't grow over your head in minutes. He would have looked at this and said, God, God brought this plant. God's grace brought this plant. God provided this plant for me. Do you see the difference? He's not looking at this as some kind of coincidence. He's seeing the providence of God in bringing this plant, and he was intended to acknowledge that in his heart towards God. God does this. The Scripture is so clear. God does this to save him from his discomfort, but there's so much more going on here. I, mean, just, I love just the brilliance of how God works, right? Something on the surface appears to be one thing, but when you dig a little deeper, no pun intended, there's so much more happening. The plant that is a physical comfort from the heat is now used by God to turn up the heat because God is really after the heart of this rebellious man. This is a God who relentlessly pursues the rebel heart. This is the God who is so merciful, who's so gracious, who's so patient. His fuse is long. Praise God. Amen? He is so patient with his people. But the use of the language here is so important to pick up on. You see, Jonah in the previous uh, verses in chapter 4 was exceedingly displeased. He was exceedingly, it tells us, angry with God. But now, as he looks at the grace of God in his life and the plant that God's provided, notice the language here, he is exceedingly glad. The contrast is intended to be stark. Do you see what's happening here? I mean, just think about what Jonah has experienced. He is not, think about this, he's not exceedingly glad to have been used by God as an instrument to bring salvation to the people of Nineveh. He's not exceedingly glad because he's seen God's grace put on full display. He's exceedingly glad only, listen, only when he gets something for himself, when he gets shade. Isn't that amazing? He's so self-centered. He's so fixated on his own comfort. And God knows that. He's only exceedingly glad when he's got his shade, when God takes care of him, when God provides for him, when God shows grace to him, and this is so amazing, the greatest moment, this is, a, this is fascinating, the greatest, greatest moment of joy in the prophet's life in this entire book is found right here with a plant. He's happy with a plant, like that's it. He's been swallowed by a fish. His life has been spared. He's seen the grace of God, but oh, a plant, this is amazing. It's ridiculous. Let me ask you, what brings you your greatest joy? What produces in you an exceedingly glad heart this morning? Are your greatest moments of joy attached to moments of comfort? Are your greatest moments of joy attached to personal ease, to personal success, maybe to personal possessions? Or are your deepest and fullest joys attached to the work of God and to the God of grace? I mean, I, I just, 
I have been sufficiently rebuked by this text this week. I need to just let you know. And I'm not asking you to do something in your own heart and to examine your own heart in a way that I haven't been asking of my own heart this week. And I just tell you, I've been praying, God, would you expose sin? Would you show me areas that, you know, things in this life that I find more comfort or pleasure in or more peace in than I find in you? Can, Can you do that? And God has been really faithful and it's been uncomfortable grace in my own heart this week. And God has shown me things that, I need to work on, I need to grow in, that I need to surrender to Him. And I can say with confidence to you this morning that I am Jonah. And I'm just so thankful that Jonah's God is my God. You see, we can enjoy God's grace just like Jonah, and we can also find greater joy in an evening to ourselves. We can find greater joy in an air-conditioned home. Does that hurt? We can find greater joy in a flat screen television or a surround sound system. We can find greater joy in a vacation, a retirement, material possessions. We can find greater joy in money. We can find greater joy in sports and hobbies, entertainment. We can find greater joy in our spouse, in our kids. We can find greater joy in entertainment, in food, in art. Did I hit you yet? If not, that's okay because the Spirit of God can hit you where you find greater joy. In fact, I would just take a moment and ask the Lord that question. God, where, where are there areas in my life where I find exceedingly more joy in those things that you have given me than I find in you? And, and if you're, re- like, do that right now. Go ahead. Some of you right now, are, you're, this is what you're doing. You're saying, you're like, how do I know that's something I find more joy in? Well, here's the thing. You're thinking about it. And, and, and some of you need to know, this is how you really know, because you're going, hmm, no, he can't be talking about that. That's the thing right there, okay? If that's what you're saying in your heart, no, it can't be this. There's, there's no way it's this. That's the thing God's going after right now in your heart. That's the thing God is drawing to the service. That's the thing he wants to show you. Here's the thing that you love. Here's the thing that you worship. Here's the idol of your heart that needs to be removed. We can find more joy in these things. Here's the sad part, than the one who gave them to us. And we like Jonah, here's the reason why. We're driven by our passions. And from cover to cover, the Scriptures warn us about being driven by passions that are antithetical to Scripture, that are against what God wants for us in our hearts. Now, I have a few Scriptures for you that I want to just draw to your attention. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2. Listen to this. He, he writes, this is very personal to me, he writes to a pastor of a church, and he warns him, listen, so flee youthful passions. Say, what's a youthful passion? Anything you flee that's more important than God, right? Anything. It's youthful. It's immature. It's inadequate. Flee youthful passions and notice this. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I just want you to notice something. The Scriptures always tell us that our hearts sinfully pursue passions that are against the will of God. It's embedded in each one of us. It's all because of the fall. But here's, here's the reality. Look, a lot of Christians think this. The way I'm going to move past these passions consuming me is to just stop pursuing them. I'm just going to stop and push them to the side, and I'll fight the urges for the, the passions that are, are waging war in my flesh. Instead, the Bible always does this. It sets up a contrast, a put off and a put on. You see, passions in your life aren't the problems. The problem is the weakness of our passion for something greater, okay? Passions aren't just stopped, they must be replaced. 
And so here, even Paul tells Timothy, right? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, right? Pursue these things, pursue the things that God cares about. Be passionate about those things. Look what Paul says to Titus, another pastor of a church. For the grace of God, I love this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look at this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But do you see the flip side here? And to live instead, if I can, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Get passionate about those things. Get passionate about the things that God is passionate about. Pastor Brian recently preached through James 4. You see how passions rule your heart. James 4, chapter 1, James says, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions wage war in your soul, right? The reason you fight with other people is because you're dominated by passions for things of this world. You want and you don't have. So you hurt and harm other people. You see, your passions... They cause you to covet. They cause you to be angry with others. That's why James also says that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. I mean, if I can just close this out with just a couple more, just listen to this. First Peter, I was reading it this morning. It's amazing how he picks up on this theme. First Peter 1.14, just listen. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Chapter 2, verse 11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. God approaches Jonah, and what he's really zeroing in on are the passions of Jonah's heart, the love of comfort, the love of self. And his object lesson teaches us, by the way, just practically, how to understand and address the heart. I love Proverbs 20, verse 5. It says this, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Hear God, he just so graciously and tenderly goes after Jonah's heart and he wants to pull to the surface what's inside. I love to, um, to use kind of everyday kind of normal stuff as, as kind of pictures with my kids as trying to create some spiritual parallels as I'm teaching them things about the word of God. And, and so I try to find things that are relatable to them and then, and then you know, show them the spiritual principles that we can extract from that. I was sitting with my daughter at the table uh, earlier this week and she's getting a hot dog ready. We're sitting at the table just talking and, and she's sitting there, she's got a ketchup bottle in front of her. And, and so I thought, ah, perfect. I got a great illustration. I'm thinking about this. I'm mulling over this text. I'm thinking about how the heart works and why we do what we do. And, and then I said to my daughter, okay, Karis, go ahead, put your ketchup on your hot dog. So she, she picks up the bottle and she puts the ketchup on and Puts it down, and I said, okay, now hold on. I, just, I, I want to ask you some questions. Right? She's like, oh, Dad. I just said, uh, so, Karis, tell me, how, how did the ketchup come out of that bottle? She looked at me, and she just kind of said, well, I, I squeezed it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's good. I said, well, can you answer this? Why did ketchup come out of the bottle? And she looked at me just perplexed and like, Daddy, I don't know. Can I eat my hot dog? And I'm just... I just, I said, well, honey, listen, it's because that's what was inside. See, and that's the way the human heart works. 
And sometimes we don't see what's actually in the heart until it gets squeezed. And God, God will often apply pressure to our hearts, and He'll squeeze them to show us, listen, that the pressure doesn't put the ketchup in the bottle, right? The squeezing doesn't put the, the ketchup's in there. Jesus said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Whatever treasures you store up in your heart will come out of your mouth. But the problem is, so often we can't see what's in our heart until we're squeezed, and when we're squeezed, what spills out is an accurate reflection of what's going on in our heart. And that's exactly what God is having to do to Jonah. He's squeezing Jonah here, and so God, for Jonah's greater good, wants to make sure that Jonah gets the message, and look at what he does in verse 7. This is, this is awesome. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. It gets even better, right? Then the Lord is going to crank up the heat. But I just, just put yourself in Jonah's flip-flops for a minute, okay? He, he's sitting here. He's experiencing the blessings of God, the comforts provided by God. And all of a sudden, he wakes up the next day. He looks for his plant, and there it is, withered on the ground. And he's like, God, what are you doing? Like, are you serious, God? Why would you do that? Why would you give me something so good? Why would you help me out and ease my comfort and my discomfort and my pain and then take it away? The plant that gave Jonah so much delight has now been destroyed, and now he's utterly distraught. It's left as quickly as it came, and Jonah's left asking questions. God, you gave me comfort and blessing and joy in the vine. And then a worm comes and destroys my happiness. One day you pour out your blessings, the next day you take them away. The vine brought comfort, blessing, and joy. The worm brought sorrow, disappointment, and loss. I wonder this morning, has God brought a worm into your life? What has brought you sorrow? What has attacked your comfort? What has God taken away from you? Where have you experienced loss? See, it's not just the worm, though. Right? To, to rub salt in the wound, to add insult to injury, God sends a sandstorm, blazing hot wind into the face of Jonah, and he allows the sun to come beat down upon his head, and where he was once exceedingly glad because of his comfort, now he is exceedingly angry again. I mean, he's so angry, he's asking God that he would just die. God, I can't take this. I wish I would just die. I wonder this morning if you may be like Jonah here, your life has been brought from comfort to calamity. I wonder if you have any wind that's blowing in your face. I wonder if there's some painful circumstances or events that are happening in your life right now. I wonder if the sun feels like it's beating down on your head, if it's sucking the life right out of you, it's draining your energy. I wonder if maybe you're asking the question, maybe it would be better off if I was dead. What do you wish in your life would just simply go away? You know, Jonah, there's some amazing parallels with Jonah and Job. Here you have the, the, the man Job who's incredibly righteous and, and he's wealthy, he's got power, he's well-respected, he's got a great reputation, he's honored, he's esteemed, and all of a sudden God comes uh, along and allows Satan to come and take everything away from him. 
mean, he had the vine of God's blessing in his life, right? He had wealth, health, he had prosperity, he had great family, and all of a sudden, it's all stripped away. Every part of it, the worm comes and devours it. All his kids dead, all his wealth taken, and he's sitting, no health, no wealth, no prosperity. The wind blasting his face, his family, his loved ones, the pain, the turmoil, and yet what's so different, Jonah here says, I'm so angry I could die. And Job says in Job 1.21, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I wonder if the question for us is this, will we love God only when he gives us good things? That's what Satan accuses Job of. Job, God, he only loves you because you give him all this stuff. Of course he's going to serve you. Of course he's going to pray to you. And sadly, there are many in the church today who are driven purely out of self-interest. The gospel is a means to an end for them. And when they don't get what they want from it, they're out. And the most important word in this section is this word appointed. I just, I want you to see this three times This word is appointed. It's the same word that's used when God appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. And what we see here is an amazing display of the sovereignty of God over all things, both massive and minute. Here is God. Lord, he appoints a fish, he appoints a plant, he appoints a worm, and he appoints a scorching east wind and a sun to beat down on the head of Jonah. He controls all things in nature. He's supreme ruler of the universe. And this is amazing because in the same way that God appointed, listen, a fish to save Jonah, he also appointed a plant, a worm, and a wind to teach Jonah a lesson. God appointed these things, listen, primarily to expose and deal with the selfishness that lurked in Jonah's heart. God's hand is at work in all the events of your life. This is the comforting news. Look, in all the events of your life, God is at work. He has a purpose in all that he does. That doesn't mean things are going to be easy, and some of you are suffering greatly, and God has compassion for you. But listen, there's no mistake. God is not making mistakes. He wants to use those things in powerful ways in our lives. You say, why does he do this? Why does his grace have to be so uncomfortable and painful? And here's that, the final thought for us, because we are loved by our Father. See, that doesn't sound consistent. If he loved me, he wouldn't allow me to go through pain. And yet the Bible tells us a different story about God's love for us. Look, the shady plant had been proof of God's love and grace, but so was the murderous worm and the menacing wind. Why? Because of what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son he receives. You see, God's love for us extends beyond just giving us good things, good material blessings to, you know, and we understand this as parents. If we love our kids, we want, our ki- we want what's best for our kids, and so we discipline them. Right? We, we have to do things in their life to help teach them that their life will be better if they learn to submit and obey, not us simply, but God. That's not to say, listen, that every Every trial that you experience is a result of the disciplining hand of God. That's not the case. Don't, don't, don't leave here thinking that. Listen, sometimes trials come in our lives because of our own personal sin and consequences of sin. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes, listen, trials come in our life simply because we live in a cursed, sinful, fallen world. 
But sometimes, listen, sometimes trials come in our life, they come in a very, very powerful way at the hand of God, the loving hand of God. And they always, regardless of what category your trials might fall into, they always come with purpose and intentionality, and they always come under, you know, they have to be passed by. They have to come through the hands of a loving father so you can be assured this morning that God knows, God cares. And God has a reason for this. And here, Jonah, in verse 9, it's amazing. Jonah, God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah, do you, do you think you, you have the right perspective on this plant? Like, do you think that you deserve this plant? I mean, the plant that you helped grow, the plant that you watered, the plant that you produced. Oh, wait, you did none of that. I did it all. I did it all. I gave to you. I gave to you out of my own goodwill, out of my own grace, grace my own mercy. Do you do well to be angry? At that moment, Jonah should have said, oh, you're right. But instead, do you see what he says? This is amazing. He's such a drama queen. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Hmm. You know, it's like, really? What? Jonah wants to die. But here, here's, here's what's so powerful. God wants him to live. Living for yourself, ultimately, listen, is dying a slow and painful death. Living for God is knowing the joy of this life to the fullest. That's what God is after. That's why God is turning up the heat and applying the pressure. This is uncomfortable grace, listen, but it is intentional grace. It has divine purpose and design, and sometimes, sometimes we don't view God's trials that he's allowing in our lives and bringing our lives very correctly. This is not the suffering of a punitive anger. This is not the suffering of divine unfaithfulness on behalf of God. This is not the suffering of divine neglect towards his child. This is the suffering of uncomfortable grace. This is a God who loves this man enough to bring this moment of discomfort into his life. And he does so in a loving way so that in this moment of discomfort, listen, Jonah will finally get it. He will finally realize that he's been living for all the wrong things. And that he'll begin to submit his wisdom and his plan to the, and his comfort, by the way, to the all-wise, all-sovereign, all-gracious God that is active in his life at this very moment, wanting to draw out of his heart, wanting to give him so much more than he's been pursuing Some of you are going through moments right now of very uncomfortable grace. Maybe you're looking around at other people and Christians or even non-Christians and saying, God, why why do they have it so easy? Why is my life so hard? I, I spoke with a friend of mine this past week who's a pastor going through some incredible trials in his life with this child, and and she'll never be the same. And and he said to me, He said, You know, sometimes, sometimes in my my heart, I, I, I turn to God and say, God, why does my life have to be this hard? Why do I have to suffer like this? And other people, I'm, oh God, I'm serving you. Why do I deserve this? Listen, in our moments of despair, let us not forget that we have a God who loves us, who will not neglect us, a God who will not forget us, and a God who will not cease to be faithful to us. So what God is bringing in your life, though it may be painful, cannot be wrong. It must be right even if we can't see it. This moment of distress and uncomfortable grace 
is meant to turn Jonah's heart just as those uncomfortable graces in our life are meant to turn our heart. It's meant not as a moment of redemption, excuse me, of resentment, but of redemption. But that's not what Jonah sees or chooses to believe. Instead, he says, God, just kill me. I'd be better off dead. I don't want to endure this anymore. I don't want to endure you anymore, God. If this is the way that you operate, if you give and you take away, I will not say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I will say, just kill me. In the Christian life, it centers around two amazing gifts, justification and sanctification. Justification is the event whereby God legally declares you innocent. He looks at you and He says, your sin has been paid for in full, and He imputes to you the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says, I will not hold your sins against you. Your debt has been paid. It's been paid in full. And I've robed you in the precious righteousness of my son. And that happens when we look upon Jesus Christ, when we embrace him as Lord and Savior, when we confess our sins, when we turn to him and say, I trust that you have paid it all. I trust that you rose from the grave. I trust that I have no hope apart from you. And I lay down my life to follow you. At that moment, God looks at you and he says, you're no longer a sinner who is deserving of wrath and hell. You are now adopted and brought into my family. You are a child of mine and I will shower you with my love. I will shower you with my grace. It's a precious gift of God. But the second gift in the Christian life is your sanctification. Listen, sanctification is different from justification. Sanctification is the process in which God works by His Spirit through His Word to weaken the expressions and manifestation of sin in your life and to produce within you the fruits of the Spirit, a greater likeness to His Son, Jesus Christ. Simply put, in justification, God forgives you through Jesus. In sanctification, He makes you like Jesus. He cares about your justification because He doesn't want you to perish. And he cares about your sanctification because he's not in the business of bringing unchanged rebels into his home. See, God's purpose in your life over time is to produce increasing likeness to his son, Jesus Christ. This purpose for your life and for mine is your highest good and it will be your greatest joy as you submit to God throughout the process. God provides for your sanctification by bringing you gifts that you can enjoy, disappointments that bring you sorrow, and trials that will often bring you pain. He uses the vine and the worm and the wind to produce in your life and in mine greater likeness to Jesus Christ. God uses the worm and the wind, notice this, to save Jonah in this picture from a vine-centered life, a life that loves the gifts more than it loves the givers. And God wants to expose that in the heart of Jonah, and he wants to root it out because he knows that is not where life is meant to be lived, that is not the greatest source of joy and delight that you can experience. But in each of our lives, it's possible to love the vine so much that when it's eaten and withered, we wonder if there's any reason left to live. And the Bible calls this idolatry. A certain person, position, possession, passion, or pleasure can be our greatest reason for living and our greatest source of joy, and yet it must not be that way. One of my heroes in the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous Welsh preacher in the 20th century, as he laid on his deathbed, some friends came to visit him, and he was confined to a small room, and in a bed he was immobilized, and his friend asked him this question, how is it with you, doctor? 
You have traveled the world preaching to vast crowds of people, and now you're confined to this room. He answered simply by quoting the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He had experienced the vine of God's blessing upon his life and upon his ministry, and yet he did not live for the vine. The vine will pass away, but God's love never will. Our greatest joy is not, to, is not to be found in the vine, but in knowing that we are eternally loved by our Father. The day is coming, listen, where we will enter into eternity and we will know the fullest blessing of God's love. But for now, we look to the cross and we see the culmination of God's love. We see that God's love for us was manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed and thrilled by the reality of God's love towards us undeserving sinners. And as we go through this life and we encounter trials of various kinds and to varying degrees, listen, the hope we have is this. We look to the one who encountered the greater vine, the greater worm, and the greater wind. We look to the one who had the blessings of God, who had all honor, all glory unto himself, who even enjoyed some, a degree of earthly blessings from the hand of the Father. But then the worm came, and as the shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered. He was forsaken by all of his disciples. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and the wind came in full fury as he was nailed to a cross of wood, pierced through by the hands of sinful men. And the full weight of the wrath of God was unleashed upon him. Every last drop poured out on the Son of Man and the Son of God. So whatever you're going through, you can look to the one who has endured he endured with such faithfulness. And you can know that if you have His love, you have everything you need. God's uncomfortable grace will either make you angry or it will lead you to worship. Growth in the Christian life flows from a communion with Christ in which you love Him by seeing and savoring to greater degrees the depth of His love for you. The more you see God's love for you, this is why we focus on the cross, church, so much, the more you will grow in your love for Him. But this life is hard. And so I want to leave you with three simple prayers to help in this, on this journey. Three simple prayers. First is this, Lord, help me to receive your gifts gratefully. Just help me, help me, Lord, to receive them, to thank you for them. Lord, I don't deserve them, but you're gracious to give them to me. Receive his gifts gratefully. Second prayer is this, Lord, help me to hold your gifts lightly. God, help me not to, to put all my stock in those things. Help me to realize, Lord, that you give and you take away. And help me, Lord, to declare, blessed be the name of the Lord, regardless of what you allow into my life, regardless of what you throw my, my way. And third and most important, Lord, help me to love you more than I love your gifts. God, I want to thank you for the gifts, but I want to hold them lightly because I want to love the giver of the gifts more than the gift itself. I want to love the one who blesses more than the blessing. We need help to do that, don't we? Praise God that His grace is not only uncomfortable, it also enables us and it strengthens us and it helps us.